0: Well, amen. And good morning, Christ Chapel. Amen. Man, it is great to be with you, to worship with you. I am coming to you live from the South Campus. Uh, yeah, yeah. Excited to uh, be with you and uh, worship the Lord together. So I hope you're all having a good weekend. But before we go any further, I want to continue to worship as we give you an opportunity to Give as a form of worship, and so if you'd like to give today, you can certainly do that online. That's how Jen and I give, and we've got the whole family. Our whole family came to the South Campus today, uh, so you can give online. Uh, you can certainly text in the code that is on the screen, or you can drop in a physical gift outside of the worship venue that you're worshiping in uh, after the service. But thank you for giving. Uh, your giving makes a tremendous uh, difference and impact on the things that we get to do to spread the gospel uh, in our community to reach. Eight hundred thousand in our own backyard who do not know or walk with Jesus, but we are going to open God's Word. So why don't you go ahead and turn to Acts chapter nine? Acts chapter nine. If you're opening one of the blue Bibles, no matter what venue you're in, it's page 917, nine one seven nine one seven nine seventeen. And I want to say a special thanks to our technical arts team and our. Um, IT team for allowing me to, to be uh, here and able to preach live here and get out to the other venues. They've uh, done a yeoman's work and really appreciate them. Also appreciate our creative arts team. They do a fantastic job. Uh, with. They do some of the things like that video that you just saw uh, right before uh, the sermon. And they, they're so intentional about trying to uh, get you thinking about what we're going to be talking about bef- right before we dive into God's word. They, they really try to Till the soil. And, and so I always like to kind of point out some of the things uh, that they put in there uh, just to highlight them so that you understand. Because as you know, we're in our series, Unexpected, and that's because some pretty unexpected things have been happening in the book of Acts. And we've highlighted those things the past couple of weeks. But one of the things that you might not have noticed is that subtitle to the series. And that subtitle to the series is called The Divine In Between. The Divine In Between. And the The reason why that subtitle is there is because uh, that creative arts theme, and and we certainly want you to understand this as a church, is that God works in between Sundays. (laughs) God doesn't only work at church. He doesn't only work at Bible studies. He doesn't only work during your quiet times. All of those things are wonderful and necessary. Don't stop doing those things. Those are, those are all great, but God works in between point A and point B. He, he works in between those Sundays, and that's why some of the, some of the things that you're hearing in that video, th- those are prayers. Those are people that are doubting that God can can use those in-between moments, that that the divine can actually enter in between point A and point B, between Sunday and Sunday and, and actually work. And so in there, it says, is it possible that any moment can be holy? that these daily moments that we view as ordinary and mundane might be better described as often 10,000 events you use to extend your glory, to reach unexpected people in unexpected ways. And that's what we really wanna highlight is, is God can work in the divine in between. He can work in between Sundays, and we want to give you that vision because that's what we see in the text. Because God can use just one profound moment, one one profound uh, conversation that you might think, that's just a normal conversation. That's a normal interaction. But God can use that that powerful way, that powerful conversation in a profound way that impacts generations. And that's what we see in the text today. Because we're going to pick up in Acts chapter 9. Uh, Acts chapter 9, verses 1 to 19 is where we're going to be today. But what I want to do is uh, I want to review very quickly before we jump into the text. Because as I said, we, we've shown you some unexpected things that have happened. But if you'll remember, at the beginning of Acts chapter 8, where we started this unexpected series, what is going on at the beginning of Acts chapter 8? Now, remember, I like to talk to you, and I like you to talk back, okay? Remember this, okay? What is going on at the beginning of Acts chapter 8? There's something not good going on. Saul is ravaging the church. He, he is after the church. He, he does not want the gospel to spread, and so he's persecuting the church. But he's not stopping the church, In fact, it's spreading the gospel and it's spurring growth in the church, a very unexpected thing that, uh, that happens when he's trying to persecute, imprison Christians, et cetera. That's what's going on in chapter 8. And as a result of that, we see the church spread into Samaria, specifically in chapter 8 through Philip. And we've talk, we talked about Philip for two uh, specific weeks. But now we're picking up in Acts chapter 9, where guess what is happening at the beginning of Acts chapter 9? The same thing that was happening at the beginning of Acts chapter 8. Saul is ravaging the church, but God is going to intervene in a divine way in between point A and point B. He's going to interact in this conversation that's going to happen in between uh, these two people that used to be enemies. God is going to work in the divine in between. And we want to give you a vision that God can do that in your own life as well. So we see those moments and seize those opportunities. So let's jump into Acts chapter 19. I want to read just verses 1 through 9 uh, to to kind of set the context before we, we break it down. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, he goes to the high priest and he asks him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, and the way was the name of the early church, they called themselves people of the way, men or women, that he might bring them bound back to Jerusalem." And the men who were traveling with him, they stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. So Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were open, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus, and for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor Drink. And we're going to stop right there for just a moment. May God bless the reading of his word. May our hearts be open to hear from him. So Saul is ravaging the church, same as he was at the beginning of chapter eight. And he is so determined to put an end to the church that he goes to the high priest and asks for letters so that he can go get those Christians, those folks of the way in Damascus. Now maps are helpful for me. So I just want to show you like where Damascus is. So Remember Jerusalem, and we've talked about the, the gospel spreading from Jerusalem to Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Damascus is about 200 miles from uh, just north of Jerusalem. Now, I've also put Tarsus on there as well because Saul is from And you'll hear that later on in the text as we read it. But I just want to give you some some context of of where things are going on today. So Saul is ravaging the church. He wants to go to Damascus, which is this six-day journey. And God is going to meet him in between Jerusalem and Damascus. The divine will intervene in between those two places. And what I want to show you today is how God can, can interact. He can intervene in the divine in between in powerful ways. When he intervenes, it has a profound impact. And these are things that apply to our own lives as well as we live Christ-centered Lives, And so let's look back at these first few verses where I want you to see that the power of one Christ-centered moment can change how a person sees Jesus. The power of one Christ-centered moment can change how a person sees Jesus. So as I said, Saul is going from, uh, from Jerusalem to Damascus, and he wants to extradite, basically, these Christians and bring them back bound to Jerusalem, Uh, and he gets these letters from the high priest in Jerusalem so that he can enter these synagogues and and take those Christians out. Uh, Early on in in the Christian faith, many of the, the Christians were coming out of Judaism. They were believing Jesus was the Messiah that was prophesied, so that's why they were still meeting in synagogues. That's why he wants those letters there. But you say, how does Saul get letters from the high priest? Like, how does he have these connections where he can get these letters to go into Damascus? Well, we need to understand a little bit about Saul, okay? And before I tell you about Saul, let me also say this. Uh, Saul and Paul are the same person. Okay, Saul and Paul are the same person. Saul is his Hebrew name. Paul is his Roman name. And beginning in Acts chapter 13, we, he, he starts being called Saul. I mean, a Paul, because that's what he's known for the rest of, of his life. Why? Because he is an apostle to the Gentiles. So that's why he uses his Roman name. But you need to understand Saul and Paul are the same person Okay, as we talk about this. So Paul tells us about himself. He actually gives us a biography almost of himself in Philippians chapter 3. He was the Jew of all Jews. I mean, he he was a superstar Hebrew, had uh, two Hebrew parents, even though they lived uh, up in Tarsus. But he was of the tribe of Benjamin. He was the Pharisee of all Pharisees. If you remember, he was a disciple of Gamaliel. Now, do you remember what happened with Gamaliel? Remember, they wanted to imprison Peter and John. This was back in like Acts chapter four, I think, but they wanted to imprison him. And Gamaliel comes and he goes, hey, don't try to stop this. If this is of God, then you can't stop God, but you don't want to get in God's way. That was Gamaliel, but Gamaliel was a Pharisee. The Sadducees were the ones getting way too far into it. He was a rock star Pharisee, okay? He is a shooting star. He is climbing the corporate ladder of Pharisaism. He was the man. So him going to the high priest asking for these letters, it's like, yeah, Saul, no problem. You, you want that? You're, you're the up and comer, here and so that's what's going on. He has the pedigree of Judaism. He is the Pharisee of all Pharisees, and he's upholding the law. And so, for him to go 200 miles, this is like him going from DFW to Oklahoma City to go imprison Christians. And you go, why so? Why so determined? Why? Why is he so vehemently against the way? Well, remember, he thinks he's doing a good thing. He, he really thinks he is saving Judaism. He, th- he thinks he's saving the Jewish faith because people of the way, they, they were against Judaism in a sense, because they're saying, hey, Jesus is the Messiah, Jesus is the one who came, and you need to follow him. And guess what? He's alive and he's performing miracles. He's changing people's lives. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Judaism, what they thought and this is going back to what we've studied in Matthew and uh, now the beginning of Acts. Remember, the Jews thought, no, 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 the Messiah that's going to come is going to overthrow the Roman government. He's a warrior king. He's going to give us peace. He's going to overthrow the government. And then he's going to sit on David's throne. He's going to rule and he's going to reign. But the way, the people of the way, they're preaching this guy and he's dead. Don't you know they killed him? And by the way, not only did they kill him, don't you know that he was crucified? And Jewish law tells us that anyone who was hung on a tree or crucified is cursed. He can't be the Messiah. So the reason why Saul is so adamant about snuffing out the way or people that are following Jesus today is because he thinks he's saving the Jewish faith. How could someone who knows so much about Jewish law miss that Jesus is the Messiah? How could he miss this? Paul gives us a clue into this, and again, I'm using those, his names synonymously, but Paul, when he writes 2 Corinthians 4, verse 4, it says, Satan has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of Christ. Satan has blinded the minds to keep them from seeing the light of Christ. And ironically, Christ enters into Saul's blind rage and blinds him with the light. I cannot get that song out of my head all week. Blinded by the light. I, it's, it's still stuck in, in my head, obviously. But he enters in. Look, at, look back at verses three through five. As, as Saul goes on his way, he approached Damascus and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, who you are persecuting. It's so funny to me how personal this conversation is with Saul. Jesus enters in, and it's this, he he enters in as a light, and remember, uh, light oftentimes uh, denoted God's presence. And it was such an amazing light. Paul tells us there's, there's two other accounts where, where Paul gives his testimony. One is in Acts chapter 22, one is in Acts chapter 26. And when he's recounting this account, he says that, that this light showed up at noon. So, I mean, the sun is out Think about how bright this light would have been at noon. So Jesus shows up in this light, and he hears this voice. Now, we know that the other people around him heard of, they heard something, but they didn't understand the voice. This is a personal conversation to Saul, changing. This this Christ-centered moment changes how he sees Jesus. And he says, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And what's funny to me is it, it's almost like, Saul, you should know better. You, you, and he's like, who, who are you, Lord? You, you, should, you should know. You know the scriptures that talk about me. You know the law inside and out. You should know that I fulfilled all those prophecies. Why are you persecuting me? Why are you trying to keep people from following me? You know, I also find it ironic Notice that Jesus doesn't say to Saul, why do you persecute the church? Or why do you persecute other Christians? Why do you persecute those who follow me? It's personal. Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And you go, why, why does he, he say that? We, those that place their trust in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, you are, you, it is no longer you who lives, but it is Christ who lives in you. You are so identified with Jesus that you are one with him. And what happens to you happens to him. Remember, Paul, and Paul records this as well in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, that we are the body. Do you remember this? We are the body. Who is the head of the body? The right answer is Jesus, okay? Always just say Jesus, okay? Jesus is the head of the body. But do you remember how it describes Jesus? the body. We never apply this to Jesus. But, but when he goes on and he talks about the body, he says, if one part of the body rejoices, we all rejoice. If one part of the body suffers, we all suffer. And I think that when we talk about that verse, we apply that to one another, which is awesome because we're all part of the body. But you know who else that applies to? Again, the answer is Jesus. Okay. Okay. Good. All right. Jesus. When you suffer, he hurts. His heart hurts. When you have those great winds of faith, he's like, yeah. Like he's cheering you on. Like when one part rejoices, Jesus rejoices. When one part suffers, Jesus, it hurts him. That's why he ever lives to intercede for you and for me. He is so connected to you and you are so connected to him. It's the emotions you feel he feels like how amazing is so much so that he comes and he's like why are you persecuting me you are going to damascus to hurt other believers to imprison them and bind them but you're persecuting me and don't forget who is by your side every single day this moment changes absolutely. This Christ in moment changes how Saul sees Jesus. And ironically, he doesn't see much anymore. And that's why he tells him, You are going to be led into Damascus because he can't see. He says, Well, keep going. Go there and wait for instructions. And then we pick up the story because now Jesus is going to start talking to a different person, actually, a disciple of the way. So let's pick up in verse 10. Verse 10 it says, Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. Now, you need to know this Ananias is different than the Ananias in Acts chapter 5. The Ananias in Acts chapter 5 died, if you you remember that, okay? You're also going to hear the name Judas, different Judas, okay? So don't, don't make any of those associations with previous folks that you've heard about. So these are new folks. Same name, but new folks in Damascus. Okay, so there's this disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, here I am, Lord. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and the kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. And stop right there. So he enters in and uh, Jesus comes to Ananias, and he basically gives him a vision as well. And what I want you to see in this section is that the power of one Christ-centered disciple can propel God's unstoppable purpose. The power of one Christ-centered disciple can propel God's unstoppable purpose. See, oftentimes when we read Acts chapter 9, and rightfully so, we focus on Saul. I mean, Saul's the, f- the focus. But there's a wonderful disciple that is used here in a magnificent way, in a very Christ-centered way, named Ananias. And so I just want to tell you a little bit about Ananias, because honestly, though, we don't know much. Ananias is a follower of the way, but it, Luke calls him a disciple here in Damascus. So he's in Damascus. He is obviously committed to the way. And Jesus shows up to him in a vision. And I love this. Because when he shows up to him, if you look back at it, the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. He knows him by name. He knew Saul by name. He knows Ananias by name. And guess what? He knows your name too. He knows you by name. And he says, Ananias. And I love Ananias' response. Here I am, Lord. I I love, that's what, it's kind of like what we talked about last week with Isaiah chapter six. Isaiah chapter six, here I am, Lord, send me. Ananias says the same thing. Here I am. That was in the part where we talked last week about, are you willing to be moved? Are you willing to be moved and used by Jesus? And Ananias looks like he's a committed disciple. He's willing to be moved by Jesus. And he says, here I am. And he says, great. Glad you're willing to be used because I want you to go to a street called straight. Ironically, Saul is on the street called straight, the straight and narrow. I just find it interesting. Okay. Uh, So he says, go to the street called straight in Damascus. You're going to go to the house of Judas and find Saul of Parses. And that, you know, the, at, at first, when Jesus calls your name, you're like, all right, yeah, here I am. Now, I want you to go to somebody who's killing all your relatives. And I want you, I want you to go not just to him. I want you to go so close that you can touch him. <laughs> and I want, you, I want you to lay, it says, it says, I want you to lay hands on him to restore him sight. To restore his sight. Now, if you're Ananias, what are you thinking? No way, Jose. You know, no, no, no no way, Jesus. You know, no, no way. I'm not. I'm not going. I mean, you would think a blind Saul is the best Saul for the church. Like, like no, no, Lord. Like that's a miracle that, that you blinded him. Let's leave him that way don't, don't, don't restore his sight or he might go back to his old ways. Cause I've heard about what he is doing. But ironically, notice here that he gives, Jesus gives, and this is certainly unique to Acts, that he gives what I call, what I'm going to call a double vision, meaning that he gives a vision to Saul and says, "There's going to be a man, Ananias, that's going to come and restore your sight. He's going to lay hands on you." But he gives Ananias a vision. You need to go to Saul. So he tells two people the same thing in a vision. Now, why do I think that that's important? Because I think that's accountability for Ananias. Ananias goes, uh, "I don't think I heard you correctly, Lord. Um, I'm not not going." And Saul, if he sits there too long, he's going, hey, would somebody go out and look for this dude named Ananias? Because I can't see. And, And the Lord told me that he's going to come and restore my sight. And so Ananias has to go over to Judas's house on the street called Street and lay hands on him. And as he interacts with the Lord and goes, are you sure, Lord? Which I love that because it just shows us he's a real dude. Like he's a real disciple. He's a real person. Who has real doubts, and the Lord interacts with him and he says, It's okay, you can go. If you look back at verses 15 and 16, but the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings of the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. God has set Saul aside as a unique instrument. And I don't want to point out too much of the unique instrument uh, part of it because I just don't have time. But remember, he is the Hebrew of all Hebrews, but he's a Roman citizen. He he has access to kings in a sense because he has uh, Roman rights that some folks didn't have back in those days. And oh yeah, by the way. Just so you know, there were, in ancient times, there were three main worldwide recognized universities of the day. Athens, Alexandria, and Tarsus. Saul went to UT, you know, you know the University of Tarsus, okay? All those Aggies, they don't like that. Uh, He would have spoken Hebrew, he would have spoken Greek, he would have spoken Aramaic. He has all this unique background where God can use him in in, in a magnificent way. That's why he set him aside, he's gonna gonna use the Pharisees of all Pharisees. But there's an interesting statement here in verse 16, and he says, for I will show him how much he must suffer for my sake. And I've just thought, why does he include that here? Because he doesn't tell that to Saul. Who's he talking to? Ananias. And Co, this is only what Cody thinks. So why does he tell Ananias that? I think there are a couple of reasons. First, I think he tells Ananias that because I think Ananias might, because he's a sinner, fight some jealousy. Like, I want to, but Lord, I'm, don't you know I'm the disciple that as soon as you said my name, I said, here I am. Like, let me be the chosen instrument. Let, let, let me go and, and, and stand before and, rec- and make, make you known amongst the Gentiles and the kings and the children of Israel. Let, let me do that. I wonder if Ananias is fighting a little bit of jealousy. But I also wonder if he tells him that so it gives Ananias a little compassion for Saul. Like, hey, he's going to suffer So you need to go in, and you need to go lay hands on him. And I also think, now thinking about it from Saul's perspective, I also think Saul had to suffer a lot because he would be the shining example that suffering cannot snuff out somebody's belief in Jesus. Because remember, that was the tactic he was using against the way, was I'm going to make them suffer. And by making them suffer, That's going to stop the spread of the gospel. Now he's going to suffer and he's going to go, can't stop me. Can't stop me. Cannot stop the truth. I I know that Jesus is real. I know that Jesus is true. And there's no amount of suffering that you can put me through that's going to stop me from telling people that. He is going to be that shining example. The very thing he used to thwart Christianity will be the thing that he will exemplify in Christianity as he spreads the gospel to the Gentiles, to kings, and even to the children of Israel. So, this power, this power of a Christ centered disciple, Ananias, comes in and, it, and lays hands on Saul and it propels the gospel. He actually obeys. Look at verses 17 and 19. It says, so Ananias departed and he entered the house and laying his hands on him, he said, brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. Then he rose and he was baptized and taking food, he was strengthened. So for some days he was with the disciples at Damascus. So Saul, wanting to bring essentially death to Damascus, is almost sitting in a death state himself. He's sitting in darkness. He cannot see. He is not eating. He is not drinking. And then Ananias enters because he's going to obey the command that Jesus gave him. And What I want you to see here is the power of one Christ-centered fellowship can display the irrational love of God. The power of one Christ-centered fellowship can display the irrational love of God. So Ananias comes into Judas's house on the street called Straight and he lays hands on Saul. First, again, don't miss the irony. There's so much irony in this passage. What was Saul coming to Damascus to do? To seize, to lay hands on Christians. To to bind them to take them back to Jerusalem and imprison them. Now, Ananias is going to enter the house and he's going to lay hands of healing on Saul. And the first thing that he says, "Brother Saul," (laughs) I mean, how do you not weep if you hear those words? The people that you were ready to destroy their lives destroy their families, comes in and goes, brother, guys, I have been all undone all week by those two words. That is irrational. That does not make any sense. The, The person that was trying to kill your family, you are welcoming into the family of faith. Irrational. Doesn't make any sense. Where does he get that model? Jesus. We were all enemies of God. All of us, every single one of us, who were welcomed into the family of faith because of what Jesus has done for us. And Ananias goes in and offers the same gift, the same gift of grace and mercy to Saul that was offered to him to be able to be a part of the family of faith. But Ananias isn't the only one who welcomes him. He welcomes him into the faith, but then he also welcomes him into the family of faith and disciples that are there in Damascus. If you look back at it, it says for some days he spent time with those disciples. Man, can you imagine how hard that would have been, welcoming him in, going? Okay, disciples, okay? I got somebody behind me. Don't freak out, okay? Name name's Saul. But he's not just Saul. He's brother Saul. Welcome him that way. I mean, can you imagine that, that powerful introduction? One introduction... What an incredibly profound, uh, powerful moment that is for the early church. Let me give you some very quick applications here because I don't want you to ever underestimate the power of one. So first, never underestimate the power of one act of obedience, so obey. Never underestimate the, the power of one act of obedience, so obey. Ananias this, he was a he was a scriptural one hit wonder. We don't see him anymore throughout Scripture. But the fact that he obeyed here propels the gospel. I mean, the Saul who turns into the apostle Paul after this moment here. I mean, he wrote practically half of the New Testament. But who introduced him into the faith? And Ananias, and that, that's it—just one act of obedience. Don't underestimate that. So obey, and don't forget why. I mean, why does Jesus come to Saul, uh, to Ananias in the first place? He's a committed disciple. He's obeying every day those small acts of obedience. Don't wait for the vision. Don't wait for the lightning bolt from the sky. Just continue to obey. Just be faithful. Every little act of obedience—you have no idea the powerful or profound impact that can have, that one simple act of obedience. Uh, Second, never underestimate the power of one fellowship of believers, so forgive. Forgiveness is implicit in this passage. I mean, how much forgiveness had to have been given or offered to Saul? I mean, he killed my family members. He's imprisoned my family. He's wrecked our families. He's wrecked our fellowship but he forgives. I don't know if there's something that you're holding on to now, but maybe you need to display the irrational love of God and forgive someone because it can't be as bad as what he forgave. I can't imagine it. Don't hold on to anything because that could have a profound impact on that person and you. That had a profound impact on those disciples in Damascus. I'm sure of it. And what a testimony that is to the world around us, that someone who's been adversarial can now become familial in the family of faith. And then finally, never underestimate the power of one Lord, so bow the knee. Never underestimate the power of one Lord, so bow the knee. This is a great picture of what will happen to even those who are enemies of God. Christ. Because every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. We find that in Philippians chapter 2. At the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth. And that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Everyone will bow the knee. So let's begin now. He came to show us who he is, and he will come back again. You bow the knee now. You accept his free gift of salvation, declaring him as king. You don't want to know him as judge. So bow the knee now, because he is Lord of all. That will have a powerful and profound impact on your life. Let me pray for us. God, thank you for your word that encourages us, that um, steadies us that gives us a vision for how you can work in between point A and point B, in the midst of our relationships, in the, in the midst of our congregations, in the midst of our, our, our actions, our, our business, our families, all of those things, Lord God. Help us to seize those opportunities for your glory. And we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.